So I want to start this talk this evening with a couple of readings. One is from the Sufi poet Hafiz. We have not come here to take prisoners, but to surrender ever more deeply to freedom and joy. We have not come into this exquisite world to hold ourselves hostage from love. Run, my dear, from anything that may not strengthen your precious budding wings. Run like hell, my dear, from anyone likely to put a sharp knife into the sacred tender vision of your beautiful heart. For we have not come here to take prisoners or to confine our wondrous spirits, but to experience ever and more deeply our divine courage, freedom, and light. So this evening I want to talk about um, in this practice we talk of one way of understanding the the breadth of the practice or the, the sort of multi-dimensionality of the practice is uh, we talk about cultivating two wings of the practice like two wings of a bird cultivating wisdom and compassion wisdom and love freedom love. Not that they're separate, but um, they're different facets or qualities of uh, our true nature. And so this evening I want to talk more about the qualities of love and compassion. Anais Nin wrote very beautifully, She says, and the day came when the risk to remain in a tight bud was more painful than the risk it took to blossom. And I think sometimes that's the onset of our path, our practice, is that realization that it's too painful to remain stuck in our old habits, reactivities, self-limiting views, delusions, even though entering a path it requires stepping into the unknown, stepping into facing dimensions of ourselves and our experience that we may not understand or want to see. So it, it's a very courageous step to begin walking a path. And it is like a blossom unfolding. What I like about that image is that a bud contains the flower It contains the fullness of the flower, even though it actually hasn't ripened, it hasn't fully flowered. So we're a little like that, that we have the seed of our true nature, the seed of liberation, the seed of an enlightened heart, bodhicitta. And we need to water it. We need to water the flower. We need to provide the right conditions of sunshine and light, nutrients, meditation, sangha, practice, for that flower to open, for our hearts to open. When I think about the Buddha's life, I understand what happened after his awakening as a profound movement of compassion 
to dedicate his life to teaching Dharma, to teaching the truth. There is in the in the text and perhaps in the mythology uh, some description of the Buddha after his enlightenment, thinking that this teaching was so profound that he he doubted whether people would understand it, and he considered a life of solitude. And um, but he was moved by the suffering of uh, human beings, in particular how human beings create their own suffering out of their own ignorance. And that was the motivation for him to teach, which he did for 45 years. And I, so I see that movement in, the, in his life as a beautiful expression of the flowering of the practice, that in, 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 the, in this insight meditation practice, we are cultivating mindfulness, clarity, and ultimately insight and wisdom in order to facilitate a deeper level of self-understanding and ultimately freedom. And the fruition of, the, of that understanding and freedom is the way that it manifests in the world through the heart, through uh, the expression of love and compassion. That wisdom and freedom doesn't remain in an ivory tower of clarity, but actually naturally gives rise to a sense of connectedness, a sense of wish to relieve the suffering of others, of uh, expressing kindness. Just as the Dalai Lama once said, my religion is kindness. And I used to think, I used to never quite get that when he said that, my religion is kindness. What does he mean, my religion is kindness? He's come from this very profound philosophical Tibetan system in the Gelugpa school, and he's this you know, beautiful man saying, my religion is kindness. And the deeper that I understand this practice, the deeper I see that the movement is towards a kind heart, that the, the summation of uh, understanding and liberation is this beautiful expression of, of compassion or bodhicitta. And I was in conversation with a person on the retreat the other day. And uh, this person's facing a life-threatening illness. And um, they said that the only thing that seemed to matter was to be kind and to do and to help, to serve, to be kind. It's such a beautiful understanding that you know, we're all, we're all facing life-threatening. We all have a life-threatening illness called life. But some of us have it more apparent with the diagnosis. But it seems like most of us have a lot of amnesia about our mortality. And so we forget, I forget, we forget what it means to be, what it means to be alive, what it means to live this very precious temporary existence. And it's usually when we encounter when we encounter death, or we uh, are in touch with our own mortality in a very visceral way, like having a life-threatening diagnosis, that we we, we remember what what it what, what the important things to do in life are. And that generally, you know, when people are reflecting on their deathbed, it's about whether they lived a kind life, 
whether they were generous, whether they were loving, not how much money they'd made, how successful they'd been, but really what a, you know, how did their heart manifest in the world? And I, I've been reflecting on that. I've had quite a few deaths recently in family and in, in, in the, the world that I move in. And it's um, painful as it is, it's also uh, just a great wake-up call to, to remembering what we're doing here. And I think so much of the journey is both a spiritual journey, a spiritual path, is inspired by the relationship to love. Often so much of the pain that we enter any spiritual practice with often is related to um, pain around lack of love or disconnection from love, disconnection from oneself, disconnection from others. And often we're seeking, even though we might not say it or know it consciously, I think we're seeking the healing of our hearts, the healing of the pain that we, that we, that we travel with. And so sometimes I think of Dharma practice as the ultimate expression of love for ourselves because Dharma practice, meditation practice, insight practice is actually what relieves the suffering that we're trying to alleviate. I had the good fortune the other day, my sister just gave birth uh, about five days before I I arrived um, to England. And she was a first baby, she's 45. So it was a little touch and go for a while. So I had the good fortune of being uh, at the house uh, just a few days after the baby was born. And as you know, being around a young being that's just come from the womb and come from the other side, there's a lot of love in the air. There's just a lot of presence from babies and a lot of love being generated towards the baby, from the baby, in the field. And again, I like to be reminded of what it's like when we come into this world. We come in incredibly pure in some ways, incredibly open, like not exactly a blank slate, but incredibly open, sensitive, present, and seemingly with a heart of love also with having a lot of needs and demands and all of that stuff. I'm not denying that aspect of our reality. But on a deeper level, there's just a profound presence that's very much permeated with love. And so when these teachings talk about true nature and that our true nature is both wakeful and compassionate, our true nature being permeated with love, I see that when I look at a baby. And then we have several decades of conditioning and that inherent purity seems to get obscured and we forget. We forget our true nature. And so often the journey is one of remembering who we are, remembering the love that really dwells within our own heart. 
One of my favorite stories that came out of the tsunami was about um, a young hippo who was uh, separated from his mother in Sri Lanka and was the, the, the young hippo was, was washed down, down island and uh, the mother died. And so the um, uh, natural, National Park Service took the, uh, the young hippo who generally mothered for three years and he was about six months took him into a refuge and um, was sort of adopted by this giant tortoise the giant tortoises are very large <laughs> uh, I think they're about six feet or something then and this one was a hundred year old tortoise and uh, so took the young hippo under its wing and they would follow well the hippo would follow the tortoise around and would get very defensive when anybody came near the tortoise, became very protective of its sort of guardian. And there's a very sweet picture that I carry around of this huge tortoise that's much bigger than the hippo. And the hippo is sort of leaning, snoozing up against the hippo's shell, and the, the, hip, and the tortoise is sort of kindly looking at the, hip, the baby. And it's just a wonderful... Um, reminded to me of the, the innate quality of love that, that naturally springs forth from within us. This world, we couldn't have a world as much turmoil and strife as there is in the world. There's also a lot of love and harmony. We couldn't coexist with six billion of us without there being a lot of love, without there being a lot of natural expressions of kindness from as simple as opening, holding the door open for somebody or the way we drive and letting people in and the way we take care of each other's needs and cook for each other and and I always find that whenever I drop into my places of cynicism and doubt about the human race I always try and remember that there's also a lot of goodness there's a lot of beauty, there's a lot of love always being expressed uh, a lot of my friends these days um, at home uh, having children and I'm so touched by how, what a profound practice of love that is, as well as patience and endurance and all the other things that parenting demands. But just what a beautiful cycle of love the whole ritual of parenting is. So I think in our culture... The word love sort of has a, like a lot of things, has been the, the meaning of the word has been somewhat misappropriated and uh, sort of devalued with pop songs and the media. And my, my local dry cleaners has this sign in the window that says, with a big heart, we love our customers. And I always think, what do they mean by that? <laughs> exactly how do they love us? <laughs> do they love us if we shop there? And they don't love us if we don't shop there? You know, so much of the way the word love is used in, in music and other places is a kind of trade. I'll love you if you love me, do this for me, buy this. And that's really uh, not what the meaning of love is. It's trading or bartering. 
So, in the Buddhist tradition, the word for love is metta, as you probably know, which means loving kindness, or it literally means uh, friendliness, deep friendship, deep friendship with life, deep kinship with life. And in some ways, it's an easier word to use because it doesn't have the all the connotations and the baggage we have with the word love. Um, and, but the downside of it is, is we don't have the cultural associations with the word meta, and so it doesn't necessarily strike as many chords as the word love. And the, the, the teaching and the practice of meta has this beautiful quality of unconditionality to it. It's, it's really love in the purest sense, the, a, a love that we can feel for ourselves and for each other and for life that doesn't want anything, that doesn't want anything back, that's purely an act of generosity. And it's really the, you know, the ideal, in a way, of um, the highest expression of love. There's a sutta in the text where the Buddha's talking about sort of the, the pinnacle of this quality, and he, he's talking about imagining being sawed limb from limb by a bunch of bandits and that if, you're, if your metta was really strong you'd still be pervading people hacksawing you to bits with metta. So we won't put you to the test tonight. So that's, you know, it's an ideal way of looking at metta that it, it can have that endurance and these people you know, who have touched that dimension But I also like to um, not see or talk about metta as something so lofty because it's also something very ordinary. It's really a simple practice of kindness, of care, of concern for the well-being of life. Mother Teresa once said, when she was asked about how she'd accomplished such amazing amount of work and service and helping people and profound expression of love, and she said, Nobody can do any great things. You can only do small things with great love. And her life is a beautiful expression of that. So as I talked about yesterday uh, in, in the loving-kindness practice about how challenging it can be to uh, begin sending love to ourselves. You know, the expression goes, love begins at home. Love begins with ourselves. And yet for so many of us to extend a loving heart and kindness to ourselves is often the most challenging place and also the place that we're most in need. What's more common is we, when we try to send care to ourselves and loving kindness to ourselves is we come up against the obstacles, the reasons, the difficulties, the habits, the conditioning, why we don't why we can't open to ourselves with love. And, you know, the, the list of voices of internal criticisms is endless. I'm not good enough, not smart enough, my body's not right, my mind's not right, I don't have enough money, my life's not together, I, I don't have the right relationship. Endless ways that we give ourselves a hard time. I cut this from 
San Francisco newspaper. It's quite it's a cartoon strip called The Checklist of Feeling Pathetic. And it might ring true for some of you. Choose someone and compare yourself unfavorably to them. Examine your face closely in the mirror and notice all the flaws. Relive embarrassing, awful moments that occurred years ago. Anybody been doing that this weekend? Make a mental note of all the people you regularly disappoint. Disregard all compliments, especially from people who supposedly love you. And resign yourself to believing that from now on this is how you'll always feel. So we do that. We have our own checklist for feeling pathetic. And it's sort of humorous and it's sad at the same time. We have the, the checklist of all the views we think about ourselves and we believe. All, of, all the ideas we have about our future that are sometimes pessimistic and grim. And so it's interesting to reflect that if love begins at home and if we can't truly love ourselves, the question often gets asked, well, how, do I, how, do I, how can I love others if I can't truly love myself? And I think that's an interesting question because from, from, I think most people that I work with uh, in the West seem to be able to extend love much more easily to others and to themselves. And I don't think it undermines their inability to love themselves, doesn't undermine their inability to love others, but I think it places a certain limitation to the extent that we are closed and struggle with places in ourselves and parts of ourselves, to the extent that we're going to struggle and have limits with loving those aspects, those qualities in other people. And so the more that we come to heal those parts of ourselves that we've rejected uh, and not accepted for various reasons, the more our, our hearts will be open. I had an interesting experience of this when I was on a retreat uh, on the East Coast. And it was a long retreat, and a good friend of mine was sitting. And although we were good friends and had been for a long time, I always found her a little difficult. And so much as I liked her, that I was always... She had she was going, went through a very long difficult time, and there was a way that I couldn't kind of open to her, to her suffering. So I sort of kept her at arm's length, um, and felt loving, but also felt a little mm, don't come too close. And I was, went on this three month retreat, and it was one of those retreats that was completely painful, complete descent into the hell realms, and just overwhelmed with suffering, heart blown open. And, it was incredibly painful. And I came out of that retreat a completely different person, in a way. And my heart transformed in a, in a, in a way that it hadn't before. The, the pain was so, was so intense, I couldn't really do that much practice except kind of be with myself. And for whatever reason, um, I, w- I was able to feel a lot of compassion for myself in the suffering that I was in. It was about all I could do. And it was a way that I had learned to hold myself that I'd never realized I could before. And then after the retreat, you know, I was hanging out with my friend, and that that all all the ways that I kept her at bay just dissolved, and I could really open my heart fully because I'd opened my heart fully to my own pain and suffering. It was a great lesson for me. 
I remember when I first started practicing um, about 20-some years ago, and I, I was about 19, I was a kind of angry punk rocker uh, living in London. Uh, had a lot of hatred for a lot of different things and was suffering, was completely miserable as a college and uh, came across a, a Buddhist group in London and began meditating with them and they fortunately taught the loving kindness practice as well as mindfulness practice and I immediately took to it because I, I sort of knew that it was a, a salve for the heart and I did it for a long time every day and slowly felt the, the, uh, the self-hatred and the self-rejection begin to thaw over time. It was slow, but it was, it was gradual. And I remember having a conversation to, with a friend of mine from that time, and we were talking, we were trying to understand what it was to be on this path and what this whole Buddhist trip was about and uh, of course, we were completely clueless, but we thought we knew what it was about. Still, well, won't go there. And <clears throat> and at the time, I thought, well, you know, it's about becoming a better person, you know, and improving yourself, and you know, at some point you'll get in line. But I had no idea what that was. And it took me re- years to realize, and that that conversation always stuck with me because I really didn't know what to answer when he asked me what I thought the path was about. And it took me years to realize that this path isn't about improving our personality, isn't about rearranging the furniture in a prison cell, isn't about... um, it's, It's what we're doing in Dharma practice is working on a much more fundamental level. It may happen that our personality changes for the better over time, but that's actually not the purpose of the practice. And what I came to see after many, many years, being a slow learner, was that that movement to try and change ourselves, fix ourselves in a certain way, make ourselves into something is another form of becoming, another form of suffering, another form of, in a way, not accepting the reality of what is. And that freedom comes, you know, one of the building blocks for freedom is one of the sort of elemental aspects of the path is a profound level of acceptance of the way things are. Not that we don't perhaps shift and change things over time, but there has to be a fundamental acceptance of the way things are, including the way this body-mind-heart is. And at times we can, in our practice, we can come, we can touch a place We can touch a sense of um, a 
I always find it difficult to know how to describe this. There, there comes over time a sort of dawning realization that um, freedom is not about changing, fixing on that level. We can come into a radical acceptance of who we are. Understanding that uh, we are already complete on some level. We are already whole, just as that baby comes into this world with a certain completeness and certain wholeness, even though it has to go through a whole developmental journey from union into separation, develop a personality and an ego structure and a self-structure that ultimately we have to understand is not who we are, It's the analogy that I use is, and I draw a lot of my analogies from nature, it's a bit like we walk out into the garden and we see the oak trees and the beech trees and the sycamores. And, and no matter what they're like, big, small, tall, thin, crooked, old, decaying, dead, in various states of decomposition. We don't um, wish or think the tree should be any different than it is. We don't imply the same kind of standards like we do to ourselves. Well, it's not quite tall enough, it's a little crooked, it's a little the canopy is a little light at the top. You know, we don't we don't apply that. I mean maybe if we're a horticulturalist or an arborist we might look at the trees in a certain way. But mostly we look, we go out to nature and it's, there's a profound acceptance that that's how it is. The grass is like this, the flowers are like that, the shrubs are like this, the rhododendron is like that. And there's no struggle. When we meet something with that quality of presence, it's very similar, if not the same, as meeting something with the quality of love. When we come into a profound acceptance of the way things are, that itself is an expression of love. Love doesn't demand of anything. It doesn't have expectations, doesn't have ideas about how you should be. So what seems to be so painful about the human condition is that we lose, con- we, we lose touch, we disconnect with the aspect of our nature that's inherently loving, the, the aspect of our true nature that's inherently compassionate. For whatever reason, developmentally, we associate love with being external. Mother, father, caregiver, family, however we associate it. And that's probably the most painful longing, or one of the most painful longings we have as a human being, existentially as a human being, is feeling that the source of love is outside of ourselves. One of the reasons I love Rumi's poetry so much is he constantly speaks to that 
looking for the friend, looking for the beloved outside of himself. How from time to time, through grace, there's an embrace or union with the beloved, with the divine. And then the pain that comes when we drop out of that state of grace into separation. And we all navigate that journey, moving in and out of places of feeling connected and whole, to feeling very separate, isolated, and deficient. And when we're in that deficient, empty place, we think, oh, I have to get the love from the outside. And a person, a lover, a relationship, children, however we look for it. And that's one of the most painful places, to disconnect with this fact that the source of love is always within us. Yet we mistake it for being outside. And what I've come to see over time doing this mindfulness practice for 20 some years and having done the, the loving kindness practice for many years gradually seeing how those practices become really a unity that the practice that awareness practice is also a practice of love that the qualities of awareness the qualities of presence and the qualities of love are very similar, are very close. So if you think about a moment of presence, a moment of mindfulness, when you're fully attentive to something, say you're outside and you're watching, I don't know, a spider weave a web or a snail walk across the, the wet tarmac, and you're just fully attentive to that experience. Just think about the qualities of that. There's attention, there's presence, there's interest, there's curiosity, probably a sense of wonder. Um, Also quality of acceptance, not interfering with the situation, a sense of allowing, a sense of being at ease with how things are unfolding. Very similar to the quality of love. Love and mindfulness are very similar. Showing those qualities of presence, interest, curiosity, accepting what's here, not trying to interfere, not trying to judge, not trying to manipulate, not trying to get anything from the experience. The reason we get so touched by things when we're present is because there's that sense of not wanting anything, complete openness. When we go outside wanting some experience, we're in the mind state of grasping, we have a filter on, and we don't touch that same place because we're wanting something from life. Wanting interferes with that state of grace. This is from the Sixth Cent Patriarch. Good friends, my teaching of the Dharma takes awareness and kindness as its basis. 
Never say, never say mistakenly that awareness and kindness are different. They are a unity and not two things. Awareness itself is the substance of kindness. Kindness is the function of awareness. At the very moment there is awareness, then kindness exists. So kindness is the expression, the function, the movement of awareness, the movement of an awake heart. And one of the ways it expresses itself is through generosity. Generosity is itself so intertwined with love. Love love itself is a generous act. Generosity is an expression of love, you could say. And I got to see this most poignantly for me when I was with uh, a teacher, studying with a teacher in India called Punjaji. And he was a very beautiful, happy, free spirit being teacher. And um, had a very profound effect on people and was able to um, help people really see deeply, clearly. And it was a very celebratory atmosphere in his uh, teachings. But the thing I was most struck by was he, he, uh, he taught every day for hours on end and was completely um, uh, delighted to do that. And what, was, what I most enjoyed was the fact that the, the biggest gift he gave two gifts he gave one was he didn't expect anything from anyone he didn't want anything didn't particularly want people to be around but people stuck around so he showed up and gave teachings but he completely gave of himself and it was such a beautiful expression of love just not wanting anything not caring what you did not caring whether you stayed or, or, or left and the second thing was that um, what I think the biggest gift he gave was he was able to see the highest in somebody. He was able to help people see their own true nature or their true potential. It was a very profound gift of generosity that he he did that. He was able to reflect people's goodness back to them because so often we can't see it. So often we we only kind of get a sense of our goodness through the refraction, reflection from others. And ideally, a good teacher is able to do that, is able to, to reflect back your own true nature, that you've somehow become disconnected with. So if love is an aspect of our true nature, then the question that is begging to be asked is why why are we disconnected from it? Why don't we inhabit it? Why don't we dwell in that place? Maybe you do. Maybe I'm talking to the wrong people. But most people I know don't seem to be dwelling in it. It comes and goes, for sure, in relationship and contact and... So it might be just useful to reflect on that yourself. What is it you think that disconnects you from love? 
from knowing yourself as love, from love moving through you, what is it that causes the contraction to pull back, fear? And clearly, a lot of the reason comes out of our conditioning, our childhood. Not to blame anybody, but just to... It seems to be the natural process of growing up. But I think we also close our hearts down a lot because we close down because we can't tolerate or open to the feeling of pain, whether it's our own pain, the pain of another, the pain of the world. How often do we become numb or indifferent or just shut down because we don't want to feel the level of pain? The more we close down, the more layers that get overlaid on that uh, very sensitive open heart, the more it gets encrusted with a sense of coolness, indifference, numbness. Sometimes we fear opening to pain because we think we're going to be overwhelmed. Our own pain, the world's pain. And the irony, just as I mentioned the teaching from Ajahn Chah about how when we run away from suffering, we run towards it. It's the same thing with our heart and with love. When we close down our heart, thinking we're going to protect our heart, we actually cause ourselves ultimately more pain. I'm going to read something from this wonderful Palestinian poet, Naomi Shihab Nye. I'll read just parts of the poem. It's about kindness and about the, the importance of going into suffering, into the pain as a way of uh, accessing this quality of compassion, of fearless love. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things and feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow You must speak it till your voice catches a thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it's only kindness that makes sense anymore, only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread, only kindness that raises its head from the the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere like a shadow or a friend. So when our hearts open, when we can tolerate feeling pain, feeling the suffering of ourselves or the world or another. The Buddha talked about the heart quivering, that compassion is the heart quivering in response to that pain. That we feel a resonance when our hearts are open. 
We feel a resonance with somebody else's pain, with the world's pain. We feel the suffering, compassion, to suffer with. And I think it requires a certain... um, I think our tolerance needs to... It's compassion, like love, like awareness, like any of these beautiful qualities on the path. They're all practices. And I've noticed in my own journey, it it takes a certain practice to tolerate keeping the heart open to face suffering. And the more that we walk this path, the more it seems more and more obvious why we need compassion. When I, when I practiced, probably for the first 10 or 12, 14 years, I was much more interested in wisdom and insight and freedom and liberation and all of that seemed like very exciting, you know, like let's get the hell out of this suffering realm into some blissful freedom realm that I won't have to deal with this catastrophe catastrophe and the mess of living in a human body in the messy human world and and then that sort of shifted over this last many years where I've seen that um, it's just part of growing up but just understanding how difficult this life is and how difficult it is to practice and how difficult it is to, to, to be awake and how much suffering we create for ourselves. Just look at your mind. You've been looking at your mind for three days. It's both comical and tragic how much suffering is created in our mind. Think of all the worst case scenarios that have happened this weekend that never actually happened. You know, all the catastrophes you went through, all the dramas all of the stories you had about yourself or somebody else that are complete fabrications, complete mind trips that were very real at the time but created a lot of suffering. We need compassion for our delusion, for the delusion that we think we're separate, that we think we're independent, that we think we're an isolated uh, self in control of things that is a delusion that causes a lot of suffering or the need for compassion when we get caught in the belief that if I just get this one thing I'll be happy that happiness lies outside of ourselves that happiness lies in the future that things will stay the same that love lies outside of myself we know these things intellectually uh, dubious but we mostly live our lives seduced by them, 
and cause ourselves a lot of pain. We look for love in all the wrong places. Anybody look for love in the wrong place? Food, alcohol, money, fame, sexuality, throw in the list of the ways that we look for love in things that don't actually nourish us. Rumi says it, a thousand half loves must be forsaken to take one whole heart home. So another way that these practices of awareness and compassion start to fuse is um, the deeper we understand our interconnectedness, the deeper we understand our non-separateness, the deeper we see the, um, the fabrication of or the the folly of self-centeredness where are we living a life purely to make me happy to look after number one the deeper that we understand that the more our life shifts towards orienting towards uh, the natural movement of expressing compassion in the world that the deeper we understand the nature of things, the nature of this world, the more naturally we move into um, wishing to connect with and relieve the suffering and the pain that's everywhere. There was a fundamental um, movement in the Buddhist tradition about 2,000 years ago where the centrality of um, placing, practicing out of compassion for the welfare of all beings became very central. It's very central in the Buddha's life. Yet it became sort of um, enshrined in, in, in many traditions in northern India at the turn of the, turn of the first millennium. That I, that I understand as um, the need to contextualize our, re, to always recontextualize our practice to see that we're not just practicing for ourselves, that we are intimately connected with every single life form. And fortunately, we're finally starting to get that that's actually true on every level scientific, biological, whatever other system is out there. And so it becomes the natural impulse to want to not just practice, not just alleviate our own suffering, but really genuinely support and help the suffering of others. This is a reading from Bernard Shaw, George Bernard Shaw. 
which I think beautifully expresses this. This is the true joy in life, being used for a purpose recognized by yourself as a mighty one. Being a force of nature instead of complaining that the world will not devote itself to making you happy. I am of the opinion that my life belongs to the whole community and as long as I live, it is my privilege to do for it whatever I can. I want to be thoroughly used up when I die, so the harder I work, the more I live. Life is no brief candle to me. It is rather a splendid torch I have hold of for the moment and I want to make it burn as brightly as possible before handing it on to future generations. So somebody who's really clearly, beautifully grasped the meaning of life, to not see it as a brief candle, but as a beautiful torch that can be a beautiful expression of service, of devotion. So as we go back into our lives tomorrow, whatever they may be, or some of you are anyway, our normal worldly day-to-day lives, that is, as opposed to our retreat life, I invite you to um, to hold a kind of inquiry in your heart about how this practice, how the practice of mindfulness presence, how it it moves through you and manifests in the very ordinary ordinary everyday expression of kindness and love and compassion. Because ultimately, the practice has to begin to express itself through those channels. In what way can your life be a vehicle, or as Shaw says, a torch, a conduit, for the flow of love and compassion. And for many of us, it's, it's remembering that that flow of love and compassion has to begin with ourselves, to look at the ways our lives are not an expression of love and compassion, the ways that we mm, ignore the body's needs, push ourselves too hard, take on too many projects, um, neglect the body's needs, Uh, see ourselves distortedly um, all those different ways and the countless others how do we bring our lives into alignment so it's really an expression of love because the more we do that the more energy and um, something the more we'll be available to give to serve to Share, there'll be more of a sense of abundance. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.